1: Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is normally Bushwick, but today it's Industry City. I'm Kat Johnson with Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with my co-host and colleagues, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Hey, Kat. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. And Hannah Forden. Happy
2: Thursday, Industry City. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. We saw a double rainbow today. That's magical. And we
3: came out of the subway, and there was a double rainbow. And then we saw another amazing thing on the way to
2: Industry City. Alana Glazer. We saw Alana. Actually, Hannah saw Alana, and then she was like, That was Alana. And I and was like, I wasn't
3: looking. And I
2: didn't pass <laughs> out on the floor.
3: I did after, <laughs> just the thought of it. But I think Alana didn't notice us because she was looking at the double rainbow behind us. Otherwise, I'm sure she would have definitely come back to be on HR and happy hour. For sure. Next time. Alana, I know you're listening. Please join us.
2: Alana, there's hummus here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, We're super excited about our guests on today's show because they're our guests, but we're also their guests. Um, Please welcome Christine Sahadi Whalen and Pat Whalen. Thank you both for having us. We're in Sahadi's at Industry City.
4: Oh, thanks so much. We're so excited that you're here to broadcast, that we're broadcasting out of here. It's great. We're really delighted. Awesome.
1: Um, So we're going to get more into our interview with Uh, Christine and Pat but first we have a couple of announcements we always do announcements and this week we want to make sure everybody knows that we're going to be doing this every single week through fall Um, so join us at Industry City next week we're going to be welcoming Nate Adler of Gertie in Williamsburg and Claire Sprouse of Hunky Dory in Crown Heights Uh, we're going to be at Camp David just across the way Um, So join us. We're going to have bites and drinks once again. And come join us for more live podcasts. You can go to our Facebook page and see every single live podcast we're going to be doing throughout the fall. Um, We're going to have Ed Levine of Serious Eats, Billy Durney from Hometown Barbecue. It's an amazing lineup, so don't miss out.
3: Yeah, We're super, super stoked about that. Also, we have to put in a plug for our upcoming gala November 11th. Um, Everybody's invited. And uh, you can use a discount code, it's HRN Happy Hour. You can get 10% off your ticket. It's a taste around at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Find all the information with Will up in the front here, or if you're listening to this on a podcast,
1: go to slash gala. We'd love to see you there. Awesome. Okay, so we turn back to Pat and Christine. So, Christine, you've been on HRN before, you've joined us at Roberta's. Um, so, folks can go and listen to those interviews and get a lot of backstory about Sahatis. But, and and then, Pat, have you been on HRN before? Is this your first time? First time. First time. Welcome. Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) We're very glad to have you. Yes. We won't haze you too much today. Thank you. (laughs) So we're obviously in this brand new space, but let's take it back a little bit. And Christine, can you tell us a bit about your family's history and the Sahadi story?
4: Sure. So um, my grandfather came over in 1919, and he was 18 years old, and he... Um, He went to work for his uncle in Lower Manhattan, which is uh, on the site of where the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel is now, and he worked for his uncle for about 20 years, and then decided he wanted to go out on his own, so he opened his own shop, and um, then the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel came, along with the drilling and the noise, and it was very disruptive. Even though it didn't actually displace the community, it was very disruptive, so he moved to Atlantic Avenue, which is where our store still stands, in 1948, and he moved the shop there and we are still there we've expanded width wise so we were one store and now we're three stores we opened the second store in 85 and the third store in 2012 but it's all one big it's all connected um and um, we're still there we're just you know we're we used to be mostly middle eastern with a little bit of specialty originally we were all middle eastern but i want to say now we're probably a lot of specialty with a focus on middle eastern mm-hmm. So I think one
1: thing people love about Zahadi's is just sort of like the style of shopping and being able to go in and buy bulk and buy all these spices that you can't get other places. Was that sort of always the way that shopping happened at
4: Zahadi's or did it evolve over time? That's always the way shopping happens at Zahadi's, like even when... We first started... I mean, it used to be we used to open the top of the bag and roll down the top, and we used to sell it out of the bag. And then we evolved into, okay, we'll buy a display that actually holds the bag. And and now we do a mix of, um, you know, packaging ourselves uh, in-house and, um, and selling bulk out of trays or bins or whatever display is currently approved by New York City. But it actually... It, it ha- we haven't changed all that much in... The way we do business, you still are going to walk up, even from seventy years ago. A clerk or one of our, our you know customer service people is going to talk to you, ask you what you're looking for, um, and service you. You know, to put things in a bag, answer questions, um, perhaps give you techniques of what you can do with it, or just generally tell you where it came from, or hopefully give you whatever information it is that you need.
2: I'm curious, um, so I, I grew up going to Sahadi's, I grew up in Carroll Gardens, and it was always like a major destination, and there's something very immersive and like multi-sensory, especially as a kid, you're looking around at all the jars, and you're like, what's in there, I want to touch everything, I can't touch everything, and I'm curious, as the neighborhood has changed and so many more people are moving to Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, Carroll Garden, the surrounding areas, and there's a very specific style of shopping that you have to use when you're at Sahadi's, right? It's, it's, it's much more interactive. You, it's not you know, entirely self-serve. People are used to the bulk bins at Whole Foods, et cetera. So I'm curious about the sort of like learning curve and shift in like how your amazing staff interacts with customers who might not be used to um, the Sahadi's style
4: just like you see all the time on social media it's so how did you have to take a number it yeah. should be the first thing you do when you get in. atlantic avenue the first thing you do when you walk in the store should be take a number that way you can browse while you're waiting for your number to come up especially if it's on a saturday or during the holiday season um if you don't take a number you tend to be fairly irritated that the that you didn't realize that you should have taken a number and you're kind of stuck so um my staff is really pretty good about parroting almost every five minutes, please take a number as soon as you come in, please take a number because we want the customer to be able to wander and, you know, just take it all in. And we don't want you to feel trapped waiting for your number to come up. But if you don't realize, that, I mean, it's not, like we can't stand somebody at the door and say, please take a number. So one of the guys will call out every five minutes, you know, grab a number and that way, you, you know that you can then wander. And Sometimes the other customers will take pity on you if you they can see you don't know what to do and they'll help you out as you arrive, which is really kind of nice. We're very much a community store. And a lot of our customers, well, probably 80% of them are return customers. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's kind of, they all know each other, and during the holidays they're all talking, and oh, I haven't seen you in so long. So I think that that, that whole experience, watching other people, has, it becomes more natural. And every once in a while, well, when it's not, we apologize and spoof them in the middle of the line.
2: Yeah, it's a group activity. But, <laughs> exactly,
4: exactly. <laughs>
3: How did you first become involved with the family business? And what is your role now? And how has that sort of um, been part of your career plans or not?
4: I've always wanted to do this. So when I was younger, I mean, I had other jobs, local jobs. We live a, you know, a few miles from the store, and it wasn't always convenient. But I always wanted to do this. Um, I've been working on and off weekends since I'm um, eight, probably eight. Um, we used to pack a lot of stuff by hand so when the younger generation always that's what that's what our job always was to package things so um, but I've always enjoyed it and um, all through college um, I went to NYU and I the time there were no food degrees so my specialty is international business and finance which was great. I took the first food course I you ever had, because I wanted to, I was so excited there was one in college that I could get credit for. What was it? Um, oh, wow, I don't remember. It was a course on the history of food. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was in the, I think in the sociology department. huh. Um, but it was, it was really interesting, and I thought, wow. And now you can have whole degrees in this, and at the time you couldn't, which is <laughs> fabulous. But at the time you couldn't, but um, yeah. I always wanted to do this. I always wanted to do something in food. I always enjoyed cooking. I did two years of culinary studies in between my degree at NYU because I loved food, but it didn't seem like it was going to, it wasn't a, a college path at the time, mm-hmm. and, um, but I, so I came right in after college uh, to, you know, to do this, and I came in, when I came in, we opened the prepared foods department when I came in full time because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to cook. I wanted to be not just on the retail end of it, but also on the back end of it, and I'm so glad I did. I worked, I ran the prepared foods for about, my mom and I did together, for about five years, and then we hired a chef, and I worked my way through the whole, every area of the store. I mean, I do everything, I've done everything from buying to floor retail to the actual cooking, catering, whatever it needs to be. I mean, in small business, you do everything, and, you, and I'm happy to do everything. It actually gives me a better sense of what I do and why I do it.
1: Pat, I'm curious about your path now
5: to to Sahadi's. (laughs) It wasn't quite that simple. (laughs) A couple of years on Wall Street, and then Christine's dad approached me about coming into the business, and I initially refused. Um, Why? I didn't want to work for my (laughs) (laughs) father-in-law. It's no deeper than that. Uh Um, And then relented after a weekend and bought in as a partner, Christine and I, into another business they were looking to acquire. And that's where I started, in the nut roasting side of the business. And that was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's been um, been a long road since then.
3: Did you have an interest in food before, like when you were working on Wall No,
5: not really. I mean, it, it, was, it was curious about running our own business at the time. And I was egotistical enough to think I could do it, even <laughs> though I knew nothing about it. <laughs> and it kind of worked out.
1: Yeah. So we're obviously here in this brand new space um, when did when did Sahadis at industry city open so we opened the 29th of
4: August okay and wow. it's been a whirlwind. I imagine it's very different than doing it's very different than building um, horizontally to open something totally different it's just been it's been a real experience I mean thank God that there's been a lot of support here and Pat and I and my brother Ron who's not here today have worked you know, hand in hand trying to figure out all the different components that are just different than what we're used to doing. Talk more about that, like, obviously
1: you're able to open one whole space like at a time, whereas before you kind of expanded mm-hmm. um, from the one store. So you're able to start from scratch
4: what do you like what are your big dreams what do you want to do what works what doesn't work this store has everything that we wanted to do at Atlantic Avenue i mean it, 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 they're not all open yet not every department is open yet but i think that like we would all look at atlantic and maybe talk about well if we had if we could do whatever we wanted to do what would we do we'd put in a pita bread oven we'd bring in a massage we'd do our own packaging lines as opposed to atlantic avenue we do a lot of stuff on different floors we had the luxury of building to suit here essentially. And um, and Industry City's been super supportive about all the things that we wanted to do here and really just interested in everything and always willing to support us with things which was great. Uh, Pat's really very involved in construction and stuff which is definitely not my end of it. I do not like it and I do not have much patience for the nitty-gritty engineering that has to go in behind the scenes. Pat happens to be Mike really good at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really don't like it, but <laughs> he's, he's really good at it. So it's actually worked out. And my brother, Ron, is very good on the electronics end. So he does a lot of website things, cash registers, all that, another mm-hmm. thing that I absolutely do not like. But it's so important. Absolutely. No, you so need all those important. components. But if I had to do all of those components, I don't know if I would have taken on a project of this size. It's It, it benefits any one of us to have Partners that are, you know, I do the creative end of it with the food, um, and you know, Pat does the structural end of it, and Ron does the electronics end of it, and it makes it a, a very smooth, well, as smooth as it could be.
5: Actually, I think it was probably even more difficult to take a raw space because in a small space, or what Christine had to do before, you only had a little piece. This was Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. It opened up like blank slate, clean slate. What would you do? And it was what about a year, two years? As the process changed and the transformed, the end, yeah. and you know, we were taking Atlantic Avenue and making Stu Leonard's a little path through the store. Yeah. And obviously, if you turn around and look at the space, it's nowhere near that. So, like Christine said, all of a sudden, what can you do?
2: Right. Can oh. you kind of, for listeners who are gonna, who are not in the room with us, can you kind of walk us through all the different oh. departments? I see. There's like a little herb garden. You have a little wine bar can you talk about all of the different components and and especially things that are different from what you have on Atlantic Ave
4: Sure we wanted this store to be more immersive for people we wanted people at Atlantic Avenue it's very much take a number get what you need move. it's crowded it's busy it's crowded and because of the dynamics the architectural challenges of three buildings being put to one store there's the, the flow is more I'm just going to grab what I need wander through it's more treasure hunting. I'm just gonna sit there, I'm gonna figure out what I want, I'm gonna go. We wanted this store to be a place where people could linger because the number one thing that we hear at Atlantic over and over is you have no place to sit. We have no place where we can relax and enjoy all these wonderful things. So we built a lot of this store, we, we built a cafe out knowing that we wanted to have a seating area, um, that we wanted to bring in Mediterranean wines and beers. So we, we built based on that. We figured that should be in the courtyard area, in the area where people would be most likely to sit and then we built the store around it. So if you come in from the entrance, which we consider most likely to be the street entrance, the first thing you're gonna see is the nuts and the fruits and the candies, because that's the first thing you see when you walk into Atlantic. And we didn't want it to be an unfamiliar experience to people, we wanted people to walk in and go, this smells like Atlantic Avenue. It it looks like Atlantic, but it doesn't look like Atlantic. That's what we were trying to do. So you walk into the nuts and the fruits, you then hit the cheeses, which is very similar to the path you also take at Atlantic. and you wind up at the end, at the um, before the register, at the deli. Or here, of course, we have the saj and the pita working in tandem with the deli, which is um, we want people to, to hang out and look. Mm-hmm. So like people come in and they're like you don't have pita bread in like trays. I'm like no, but we're making it. If you just give up five minutes, the bags will be full. You know, so it's just a, it's a different experience, but a similar experience. Mm-hmm. But people linger. I mean, I see it on the weekends. They get up, they have something to eat, they go back and they do some grocery shopping. That's what we really wanted to do. We wanted a a sense of community that was less rushed. So it's a little, we have less SKUs, but we have very carefully curated SKUs of things that Atlantic Avenue customers love. We kind of talked to people, listened to people, and looked at what we can import ourselves. Because a lot of our products we do burn ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then um, we did it. And I think that I'm happy, very happy with the product mix. really happy with the interaction with the customers, that I have less, I, it was harder for me to do at Atlantic, because here it's, I'm in the middle of everything, which is great, but um, I'm also loving seeing all my Atlantic customers on the weekends. Mm-hmm. It's so sweet. And on the weekends, I'm always, I, at least 10 people come up to me and go, you know, I'm an Atlantic Avenue customer, but I came just to see the shop. And that makes me feel great. It really makes all of us feel great that we struck a balance between new and old, mm-hmm. You know, between our historical and more modern. So in saying you have fewer
3: SKUs in this store, and you have to sort of predict what being in a different neighborhood is going to like, represent as far as demand, uh, it's very early days, we're six weeks in, right. um, but have you felt like you were kind of able to predict you know, kind of what selection you should have here? Has there been uh, any like, demand that surprised you? How are you gonna sort of evolve that as people get settled in here?
4: It's been very different, It's the SKUs that sold here are the SKUs I expected to sell here based mm-hmm. on the demographics, I spent months here uh-huh. listening to people, having lunch in other places, walking around so that we could make a choice about which things to, to which cur- which curated items are gonna work and which ones weren't gonna work. It's so interesting that things that, a few things I thought were not gonna work at all work wonderfully here and yet things that fly in Atlantic do not sell as well here and vice versa. And my brother and I still talk about it on a fairly regular basis. Like I'll say, I don't know why this doesn't sell with you, and yet it's selling here. And I guess um, the demographic here is—is is, I definitely think it's younger than mm-hmm. the demographic at Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic has a lot of traditional customers that have been shopping for a really long time. Here, a lot of customers don't know us, so they're coming in. They're in the store for the first time. It's interesting to to talk to the customers and you know just hear what they say. But I think overall. We are happy with the product mix we curated. We're gonna, of course, we'll tweak it as we go along and also um, by what we import. So Pat does all the importing and mm-hmm. imported items that we import just for ourselves are like our babies. Those are items that we, we truly care about. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, some of the people that he's developed partnerships with are people that he talks to all the time. There's a story there. And it's nice that we can share that and that's something that we probably will bring back to Atlantic as we see which items are going well. Those are going to be items that are definitely going to make their way onto the shelves. We're just still trying to figure it out. Can you tell us about some of those? Like, what are what are some of those products that are
3: just like so close to your heart and some of those stories that you're excited to share?
5: Well, one of the product lines we have is a uh, an NGO line out of Lebanon, which is a nonprofit group that helps refugees and. Um, goes into these towns and teaches them how to make a product and then tries to find a partner somewhere to sell it. And they came to us, what, about two years ago, Chris? Something like that. And we immediately picked it up and said, we'll be your first guys in the United States. We'll partner with you. They do organic fair trade wine. They do villages all over Lebanon with Syrian refugees. that They're teaching how to make little products. And we immediately, sight unseen, ordered, I don't know, 40 SKUs. Wow, and they're super excited to be working with us. So this is the first time they've been in the states. How, we've been open five weeks, so five weeks.
3: And so that seems like uh, you know this space might be a little more conducive to communicating Absolutely. that background to a customer. How do you, how do you go about doing that?
5: It's our job. <laughs>
4: <laughs> nice, <laughs> very nice. Um, well, the advantage to being here is there are less skews on the shelf. So if there's less skews on the shelf the SKUs can speak for themselves more. Um, also, um, product testing, we open up jars. I mean, if, if a customer shows even the slightest interest in something, that means another customer wants to try it, we'll open it up, we're happy to put a sample out. I mean, when we choose a product like that and really commit to it, I mean, we're bringing a lot of volume. If we're gonna commit to bringing a container of something, we truly know, we really believe in that product, we believe in the, the people behind it, um, and, and, the, and the quality of the product, of course. We go out of our way to communicate that. So, I mean, those are the items that you're going to see when you see a cheese platter. Those are the—that's the gem that's going to be on there. When, um, you know, when we when we do a house wine, that's the wine we're going to serve. It's—we try to do it holistically so that from every angle you're trying these products and you're getting a, an opportunity to. And a lot of the skews on the shelf in this store are not skews that you're going to see somewhere else. We deliberately re- eliminated anything that was likely to show up at a Target or at a supermarket because you don't need me then. Mm -hmm. So we only curated products that we felt were more um, in keeping with the family thing, so a lot Mm -hmm. of the products are small batch, and that line was a a perfect example of that, but that that carries through to a lot of the skews in the store. The skews that we took from Atlantic were almost exclusively skews that we know the people that make the product, which I, I feel like that's kind of where I want to be in retail today. I want to be on the small end. I want to be I want to be the retailer that gives somebody a chance. So when somebody comes in and they buy chocolate from me and they make this really great tahini butter cup, and they say, can I get this on your shelf? And I say, yes, and I buy it. They can't go to any, a lot of stores today and do that. So I think that's part of what this shop was about for me, was about going backwards a little bit to to smaller manufacturers and and just all these great makers who make a product that they're passionate about, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just picking things that are really marketable because they get a lot of publicity.
5: Christine said something about family before, and part of the process of us doing this is a family business and a family culture. And what felt really good to us when we came to Industry City, it was five or six years ago when we started looking here. They're building a family culture here. They were very supportive when we started building this space out, and we literally, two years ago, sat at a table, a lot of the guys here, threw our ideas on the table together to develop this space. And one of the themes to it was the Mediterranean culture is a family culture. You sit, you share, you break bread. That's why, the, you know, obviously, this is a podcast. People aren't seeing what I'm seeing. But next to the farm shelves and growing and the greenery is a giant community table dead center in the middle of the store. And what that represents is a family sharing and breaking bread. It was really a collaborative process when we did this. And that culture that Christine was talking about is that, we kept going back to it, family culture, sitting down with grandparents and little kids. So all of these tables are designed to be put together. The outdoors are designed to be shared. And as you walk around this campus, you get that same feeling. These are small business people, these are family businesses all working together here, and it's been an absolutely phenomenal experience for us.
3: I'm sort of curious as a family business um, sort of about your attitude towards risk versus kind of responsible sourcing and really caring about, um, you know, not just what is the story behind the product, but what is the impact of this product kind of on the greater world and then being able to offer that at a price that people in the neighborhood can also afford. I mean, margins in food are really small and then to say, you know, you want to work with a local producer who's got, you know, doesn't have a huge amount of capacity. You're kind of taking on a lot of risk in that business. How do you sort of go about balancing that?
4: It, it, like you said, margins of food are small. And we know that going in, but look, there's so much. I mean, you could get food dropped in your backyard today. You could get, like, what is going to make us, what is going to make you come here? So the truth is, is that I hope what makes you come here is that we care about our staff, we care about where we buy things, we care about the people we're buying them from, we develop relationships. All of that whether it to the customer separates me from key Food or separates me from a larger corporation, to me it does. It matters to me. It, it matters I mean, when we choose products, when we choose who we, who we do business with. it ma- A lot of what we are looking to do is is relationship-based, so yeah, it matters to me. It matters to me if they use sustainable packaging. It matters to me if, I can, if I'm not gonna bring something from the Middle East, then I'm gonna get the slowest carbon footprint I can. I'm gonna try to buy somebody who, I'm gonna try to get it from somebody who made it four blocks away, mm-hmm. because there's no reason to drag it from California. If, if, it's a, if it's a small batch product, somebody in Brooklyn is definitely making it, and if not Brooklyn, <laughs> Staten Island, New Jersey, you know uh-huh. what I mean, the Queens, there are people everywhere all around us that are passionate about products. So we try to balance it out. I mean, the the most of the way we do everything, we, we still run ourselves very much. I mean, true, the, the more you grow, the more you have to be more business-like, but we still function very much as a family. I mean, almost everything is run by either me, Pat, or my brother. Ron. I mean, mm-hmm. we're very hands-on. I mean, when I, We opened this store. Two or three of the, the newest staff would just come on and said, "I have never seen an owner working the side. I am not comfortable if I'm not part of what I'm doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So I want my partners to be the same way. I want my partners to be people that pay their employees. That get, like we always look for fair trade. I mean, s- some of the countries that you buy products from do not always have the the most equitable way of distrib- distributing money, and we try as best we can to choose people." like these like, you know, that are non profits or something to do business with because they've been very amenable to making even flavors that we wanted that were not on their original list. And I'm grateful because sometimes you can't find people who can do that. Mm -hmm. But today there's a lot of interest and people are willing to pay a few cents more. If they know that something's I mean, look I'm not trying to make eighty six dollars on a jar of jam, but if you I think that people are are, especially in this area in, in New York City and certainly in most of the areas that I've done business in, are willing to, to pay a few cents more for a product that they know was, was sustainably raised or, or any of those things that are important to them. And those are important not just to me, but to other people. I have a question that I would love for both of you to answer, which is like, if you woke up
3: tomorrow and the universe had gotten all screwed up and you worked in your same job, but for a big box grocery store, what would oh. be the first three things that you would do in your job?
5: first three things what
3: that you would do if you woke up you had your same job but you worked for a big box grocery store
5: uh quit quit and quit okay, <laughs> okay there you go yeah. all right I guess cool. I should have put in a stipulation that you're
1: stuck there for one day oh. your resignation is not accepted yeah. what do you do
5: wait a day then quit <laughs> <laughs> um
1: is there anything you can do
5: it's difficult when you when you one of the luxuries we have as a family business is not having to answer to a dollar.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, Christina, I, and Ronnie can override that maximizing thing. And actually, I don't think any of us really think about it. You know, it's usually the value in the la- relationship over everything else. And what you describe to me is something that's going to be truly dollars and cents driven. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, at this stage in my career, I could live with that. I don't think I'd be able to survive today.
3: So you think a uh, publicly
4: traded grocery store is not
2: Absolutely
5: fixable?
4: Not. I don't know. Not fixable. It's just there are just not things that there. Are, there's a reason why we never looked to to become part of a a, a greater you know thing where people always come out. Oh, we can buy you. We can... There's something to be said for. Like I said, for being able to get a small, somebody you can't walk into to Costco with a, a teeny buttercup and say, "I'd like to sell this on your shelf," and somebody's gonna go, "Oh yeah, I'll buy some." They don't work like that. Yeah. Um, but I would definitely the, I mean, things that I dislike that I would avoid. I big box retail is a huge on packaging. Yeah. I, I'm absolutely not. Like I'm the first one to go. Do you have to put it in that big plastic carton? Like, mm-hmm. and I think that you can't. On a broader level, um, certainly at the retail level, you have no control over that. In a, in a big box, you have to be at the way up at the corporate level before you can start making noises about patching. So I think like, and, and the other thing is, we're really funny about our staff. Like I know every member of my staff. I know their birthday. I know their kids. I, part of what we do is is that back end. Like we all work together. And I have people that have been working for me at Atlantic for 30, 35 years. I mean, my manager there has been with me since I'm 20, and, and I am way older than 20 now. So I think that I don't know that I would be able to work in an environment where family first wasn't something that we're used to having. I mean, when people come and you know things are wrong or things are right, or whatever, that's what we do. We, we function as a group and we make it work. And I don't know that I would, I wasn't ever in an environment that was so sterile. So I your answer
5: was quit too.
4: That it would work.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds um, like it. I would yeah. be very yeah. really stressed out. Needless <laughs> to say,
4: um, but I just think that y- there's something more intimate. No matter how big we are, we're still here. There's something more intimate that I just don't know. But then again, I don't shop at Big Box or so. I don't even like the Japanese experience for the reason you're that you're both I, just like get me out of we, here. We kind of like I'm the kind who still likes to walk along to see the butcher. Like,
3: yeah,
4: that's the way I was brought up. That's the way I'm comfortable. And when I travel, that's what Pat and I love to do. We look in the local markets. I think that yeah. we are what we like to do across the board, whether we're at work or out of work, is always about relationships and about talking to people and about this sense of community. Um, like he said, that's the reason that after 70 years, we decided to open another store and this is the first location. Because yeah, that's exactly we felt why really we picked confident this here
5: exactly with the why. team.
4: And we felt really like there were real people and everybody was really interested in what we were doing. I mean, we've been asked dozens of times, we've seen a hundred locations and we were I was like, this is fine, but we're not feeling that this is a good fit. And then we came here and we were like, I think this is a good fit. So um, here we are.
1: Well, on that note, we're going to get to trivia in just a second. But speaking of Industry City, we do want to give a quick word to our sponsors and our amazing host, Industry City, for having us here. Um, Industry City is New York's hub for the innovation economy. Uh, A diverse diverse mix of over 500 businesses call IC Home, collaborating across the 16-building campus, merging today's creative sectors like tech, Content creation and design with craft making and traditional manufacturing. The Industry City food scene is a rich yet approachable international experience for every palate. With five acres of outdoor space, more than 50 experimental food vendors and retailers, plus unrivaled tenant amenities, Industry City is a bustling hub where 8,000 people come to work daily and thousands stop by for a visit. Thanks to Industry City for having us. Um, so on that note, um, right. <laughs> So on that note, uh, Pat and Christine, do you have any other? I mean, it's hard to pick any other favorite neighbors. But what are you excited about with Industry City right now? Who, who huh. in, who in this campus are you thrilled to be here? Where do you eat? Where do you shop? Here. Well, obviously, <laughs> every day, right?
5: No. <laughs> Every other day. <laughs> Honestly, right over your shoulder. I'm looking across right at Moore Brothers. who was one of, the, one of the first guys we started talking to before we started doing this. We talked about, well, what about if we did like a wine and cheese tasting? What about if we gave you cheese like two weeks before and then we set something up on every Thursday? Um, there's a lot of that going on here. It's really difficult just to pick one guy. I, I would say we know most everybody by now, right? Christine?
4: I love it here. I know really? everybody. I'm like, I go to yoga every day. Everybody's waving to me. It's like I love it here. Like it's just very. There's there's probably not there's probably not a place at least not a place certainly in this area that I have not patronized during the four months that we were starting to open. We would come down. I would tell my two managers who were with me, go somewhere different every day for lunch. Every day I want you to go somewhere different. And I want you to come back and tell me what you ate that was fabulous. And um, I have I had a whole list in my inbox of all the great meals they ate and. There isn't a person that I, a place that I've gone here that I haven't just thought it was great. You know, even during social things, you'll see people from every business. I think it's just
5: a lot of fun. Three or four years ago, when we were thinking about this, I had a couple of vendors fly in with me. And they were like, what are you talking about? I said, come on, get in the car. And by the time we hit (laughs) the first courtyard to the second courtyard, you see them looking around, looking this way, looking up. And then they turn around and look at me. and said, you feeling me now?
0: <laughs> I
5: said, this is amazing. I said, yeah, come back in two years. Yeah. And when they've come back, their jaws drop. It's just a really, really awesome ecosystem. It's
1: amazing history here. It's beautiful the way, the way that the courtyards are laid out. Um, yeah. If you're listening out there and you're not here tonight, you need to get down to Industry City and just spend the day walking around and eating everything you possibly can.
2: Mm-hmm. There's so much good food so here. It's much.
1: insane. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's that time. I, told, I warned Christine. I don't know if word got to you, Pat, but we play Absolutely a little not. bit of trivia. Sorry, <laughs> We're sorry, not sorry. You're being warned now. It's a podcast, um,
5: right? <laughs> it's
2: a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were going we to ask for um, help from our live audience here. So usually in studio we have sound effects when someone gets an answer correct or gets an answer incorrect. So if some, if Pat or Christine get a correct answer, I'm gonna give you a thumbs up, and you'll go ding, 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 ding. You guys on practice? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, and that then, went so much better than I thought. I'm really. No confidence, Natural sound effect makers. <laughs> Sorry okay, for and doubting. I, I doubt that they'll get any wrong. But if they do, I'll give you a thumbs down. You go. Eh, eh. Okay, perfect. Oh. Okay.
1: And also, then after, if they get it wrong, we'll give everyone a chance to chime in. Okay, because. Sahadi's is such a Brooklyn business with such strong Brooklyn roots. We have some trivia uh, I'm calling been in Brooklyn since 1948. That's the right year, right? Excellent. I got one right. There you go. All right. Question number one. What shipping, warehousing, and manufacturing complex was built in the early 20th century and was originally named Bush Terminal after its owner, Irving T. Bush? Industry City. Hey. Yay. Excellent work. That was a gimme cat.
5: That was a full <laughs> Pandering. <question.
1: laughs> I don't know. Question number 2. Which world famous GI shipped off to Germany from the Brooklyn Army Terminal in September
5: 1958?
1: Elvis Presley. Wow. Yay. Nailed it. Question number 3. In 1960, Topsco decided to make room in its Brooklyn warehouse by dumping boxes of baseball cards that, that, that sold poorly into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> a, cert, a certain 1952 edition sell, now sells at half a million dollars thanks to scarcity the dump created. Can you name the baseball player that was on that 1952 card?
5: Not a clue. <laughs> yes,
2: 1952. Come on, baseball. And, no.
5: DiMaggio. DiMaggio.
2: Not DiMaggio. <laughs> yeah, where's our buzzer?
1: Come on. <laughs> the answer is Mickey Mantle. Oh. Oh, okay. Nice try, nice try. All right, question number four. Which of these things was not invented in Brooklyn? The deep fried Twinkie, sweet and low, teddy bears, or roller coasters?
5: Deep fried Twinkie.
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs>
4: you have another guess?
5: You go. Uh, Teddy
4: Best? No. Nope. Then it's the roller
1: coaster, because Sweet and roller is It's the Brooklyn roller coaster. I only think the Sweet one was. that was in Brooklyn. <laughs> yep. Uh, the first, like, real famous roller coaster was the Cyclone, but they were technically invented in Russia. Uh, I guess okay, I didn't I did know not that one. Well. Trick question.
2: Yeah. I feel like we still got that one as Brooklyn. Oh. We should deserve credit. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: yeah. All right, last question. The song "You Don't Bring Me Flowers" was performed as a duet by which two singers who went to high school together in Flatbush? Do you get partial credit if you get one? Yeah. Uh, who singers from Flatbush? One. Uh, one went to Broadway. Barbra nice. Barbara Streisand and Jane. Neil Diamond. Jane's got it.
5: <laughs> you get a ding. <laughs> yes, ding,
1: ding, ding. <laughs> All right, you won trivia. Do yeah. um, we get hummus? All yes, you get a hummus, you get a hummus, you get yeah. a hummus, you get a hummus. All right, well, I think that's our show, unless
4: anyone has final words. Well, thanks so much for having us. This was a lot of fun, and we're so happy that you that for What Thank are your hours you. here in Industry City? Uh, well, right now we're 10 to 5. Um, next week we are extending. We're still negotiating as to how much. But we should be, <laughs> by, by next month, we should be open um, 10 to 7 at least, you know, most of the week. Nice. Love it.
1: <laughs> All right, I quickly want to thank our friends at Industry City, Katie, Lauren, Grant, Rob, and the rest of the team. I want to thank the City Farm team, Nick and Varghese, and Sahadis, Pat and Christine, the rest of their team for having us.
2: Thank you for having thank us. Thank you.
1: This has been HR and Happy Hour with Hannah, Katie, and me, Kat. We will see you here next week with Nate Adler from Gertie and Claire Spross from Hunky Dory. Please join us. I can't we will.
2: it.